and turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. Just want to read for us this morning a couple of verses we'll be looking at, beginning in verse 17. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. This is Jesus speaking, and He says, Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of these of the least commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. A lot of times the day in which we live, that entering the kingdom of heaven doesn't enter our mind. We just think that tomorrow's going to be another day, and we're going to get up and put our pants on and our shoes on and, and all that stuff, and uh, um, you know, the day's going to be normal as can be. As a matter of fact, I thought this morning... Everything was going to be normal, and I was kind of filling up with pride because I actually dressed myself today. My wife, in a hurry to get out of here, forgot to press and put all the clothes in order, as <laughs> she usually does, what tie goes with what shirt, and so I just kind of closed my eyes and grabbed stuff, and it seemed to work. And we were back here praying at 8.30 this morning, and uh, I had something in my eye, and I opened my eye to rub my eye, and I looked down, and I had two different kinds of shoes on so God humbled me once again, showed me that you do need your wife, and so I had to run home. And they were the same color, though, so at least I got the color right, And uh, but they were two different, totally different shoes. you think I would notice that when I was walking out of the house, but obviously I had other things in my mind. But when we wake up in the morning, we just think, today is going to be another day. And uh, we think a lot of heaven until... The time comes when we get the dreaded phone call from the doctor or uh, something happens in our life that causes us, a loved one passes away, to realize that, you know what, one day we're all going to pass from this life into the next. And I don't know what your belief system is this morning, but I do not believe that you just kind of fade away. Nothing happens to you. There is a life after this one. And we're going to look a little more closely at that this morning. But if there is a life after this one, and if there is a God who is in heaven, and He does desire us to know Him, He does want to give us eternal life, that's what He claims in His Word, then the answer is, how do we get it? How do we obtain eternal life? And back, remember when Jesus was speaking the Sermon on the Mount and all the Beatitudes that we had talked and taught through the last several weeks, a lot of folks in his day, just like it is today, think that somehow they will earn God's favor by doing something. You know, you go to church, or you, you read a Bible, or you help a homeless person out, or you, you do something good, and somehow God's going to look down on that act of kindness and say, okay, well, because you did that, I'm just going to forget everything else you did, all your sin, and I'm going to let you in heaven based on what you just did. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches at all. The Bible teaches that we're saved by the grace of God, through faith. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. 
If it was of works, we would all be walking around with, you know, a, a, a proud chest pumped down. Look at me. Look at how spiritual I am. Look what I did to get into heaven. And when we got to heaven, we'd be comparing notes. Well, what would you do? Oh, I did this. I helped this many people. I gave this much to the church. And I, you know, on and on and on we'd go. But when God puts things in order, from the very beginning, He said, it's not going to be based upon what you do. That's not going to affect my love for you. I'm going to set my love on you divinely. The Bible says that even before we were born, God set His love on us. And He had the plan in place. Sometimes we think of God as reacting. Oh no, Adam and Eve, they sinned. What do I do now? Okay, Jesus, you're next up. Get down there and die, I guess. That's, that's the, the best thing I can come up with. God had this all planned out. Because with God, you have to remember, there is no such thing as time. He transcends time. So God looks at this little life that we live down here on earth as a kind of snapshot. And He sees the whole thing at once. He sees from the time before you were born, from the time you were born, to the time you die, to the time after you die, all at once. We can't comprehend that. But that's how God sees us. And so when we think of going to heaven one day, the obvious, the obvious question is, well, how do you get there? Well, the Scripture is very clear. There's only one door. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. Back when Jesus was teaching, the religious leaders of the day thought somehow that they would squeeze in by wearing their fancy robes and belonging to this belief system or that belief system, and they were constantly trying to trap Jesus into some form of, of uh, question-and-answer game that they played with Him. They were always trying to trap Him and make Him say something that would be against God's Word. Because they did have somewhat a view of, of God's Word, a high view of God's Word. Um, as a matter of fact, they, they had such a high view of God's Word, they realized that they couldn't keep it. And because they couldn't keep it, they said, well, obviously God didn't mean for us to be kept, so let's come up with our own rules and regulations. So that's what they did. They came up with traditions. And we talked about that last week. We talked about how they came up with rules that, well, you couldn't, you know, carry this this stick if it weighed this much on the Sabbath, and all these crazy things. You couldn't help a sick person and you know on the Sabbath and all, all these all these nutty things that are not even in scripture. They came up with on their own, trying to help them with their own uh, problem of not keeping the law. But well, let's come up with stuff that's external that, that we can do. And if you were a, a pretty good Jew back then, you would keep certain things. And you would look down on anybody that didn't keep it. So it just took one time when Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath, they were blown away by that. They said, hey, wait a minute, this guy is breaking our what they considered to be the law of God. He's doing something on the Sabbath. He commanded a man to take up his bed and walk. And that was on the Sabbath. Our rules and regulations say that you can't take your bed and, and walk on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is holy. It's unto the Lord. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. And so they were shocked by all that. And they were constantly trying to trap Jesus with the Word because they thought if they could trap Him with the Word, then somehow they could discredit Him because He was getting too much attention. They didn't like all the attention He was getting. They're supposed to be getting the attention. They're the ones out on the corner with all their robes on and all this stuff. And here comes this guy, starts teaching, and all of a sudden there's, there's flocks of people around him. They were threatened by that. And so last week we looked at, in verse 17, when he says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. And the reason they thought that maybe he was going to do that is because he didn't keep all their oral traditions. 
You know, they would never hang around with, with sinners and tax collectors. They were religious people. But who did Jesus hang around with? Sinners and tax collectors. He didn't have a whole lot of time other than rebuking them for the religious leaders of the day. And so when they looked at that, they couldn't understand, wait, this guy's claiming to be the Messiah, and yet you know, he's not keeping all these rules and regulations that we came up with. So therefore, since he's not keeping them, he must be going to come up with a whole new law of God. Something maybe that we can keep. So they kind of got excited. But he wanted them to understand that he wasn't there to destroy the law. And that's why he said that in verse 17. Don't think that I came to destroy the law, to abolish it, to replace it. Because that's not his purpose. And he wanted them to understand that Scripture, the Word of God, is to be honored. The, the Word of God is to be superior above everything. And we looked at three things, basically, last week. We looked at, first of all, it's superior above everything else because it's authored by God. In verse 17, it says, Don't think that I came to destroy the law. What's he talking about? Is he talking city codes? No. He's talking about the law of God. Definite article before the law. That means the law of God. And we looked at how sometimes that refers to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes that refers to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. Sometimes that refers to the whole entire Old Testament. And sometimes it even refers to the rabbinical traditions in their mind when they considered the law of God. They considered their own traditions that they came up with as part of the law of God, even though it wasn't. But God's law had always always required an inward as well as an outward obedience. God never said, okay, if you just do one, two, and three, I don't care what's in your heart, just do this. Just, just kind of physically make yourself do these things, and then I don't care what's in your heart, that's fine. I'll, I'll give a passive grade in life if you just do these three physical things. He never had that kind of an attitude toward people. He was always more concerned with what's in somebody's heart. What's on the inside? See, and sometimes we get that so mixed up. We think that to become a Christian is somehow to mold yourself into the form and walk lockstep with everybody else and everybody dresses the same and you all have this plastic smile on your face and you carry your Bible around and you know everything's just happy, happy, happy. Well, that's not the Christian life. Matter of fact, Jesus promises trials. He promises his tribulation. He says you're going to have a hard time of it. That's why I gave you the Holy Spirit. That's why I gave you the Word. That's why I gave you the church. So you could gather together and fellowship and encourage one another as you go through this Christian life. Because it's not a bowl of cherries. But God had always been concerned what was on the inside. And the Jewish leaders of, the, of Jesus' day, weren't. they could care less what was on the inside. They were just worried about who looked best in their robes and who was keeping the, the, the physical law and, and how they could do it and all these kind of things. And sometimes we fall into that same trap. We get our eyes kind of off focus and we get our, our attention drawn to things that are, in God's eyes, not important. And sometimes we even come up with our own little list of do's and don'ts. And, you know, well, if you're a Christian, this is the way it looks. I think if Jesus were to walk in a lot of churches today with the way that he was in the New Testament, in his life and ministry, he'd probably be kicked out of a lot of churches. Just because he didn't fit the mold. And so 
Jesus basically pointed out that, you know what, God's law, it was His law, it's authored by God, so therefore it's, it's above everything else. Secondly, we looked at that it's affirmed by the prophets, because He says not only the law, but the prophets. And that was an important point. Because over and over again, the prophets always affirm the law of God and vice versa. And we look at the three parts, the moral, the judicial, and the ceremonial aspects of the law. And the last thing we looked at was what was accomplished by Christ. He says he didn't come to abolish it, but to what? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled the moral law, he fulfilled the judicial law, and he also fulfilled the ceremonial law. I mean, that's why on Saturday, which is the Sabbath in Judaism, that's why they don't meet on a, a Saturday. That's why even on a Sunday, you know what? If, if, if you want to do whatever you want to do on a Sunday, it's fine. If you want to worship God on a Wednesday, that's fine too. I mean, obviously the model in the New Testament church was on the day of resurrection, which is, is traditionally the Sunday. They met and they worked. But it, there's nothing wrong with meeting on a Monday and having a worship service. See, some people get all uptight. Oh, you have to do it on Sunday. Well, if, if that's when you want to do it and that's when your church gathers together, that's great. That's the biblical model, but nowhere in Scripture that says you can't do it any other, other day. Matter of fact, it says just the opposite. It says don't put certain days above others. We should have a day of rest. We should have a day that, you know, focuses our attention on the Lord, obviously. But that doesn't mean that, you know, maybe resting for you is cutting your lawn. I don't know. I don't know what's relaxing for you. I don't know what you know helps you in that area to relieve stress. But we're not under the law in, in the way that they viewed it back then. I mean, it's funny because you hear some Christians, oh, you can't do anything on a Sunday, but they'll go out to a restaurant. Who do you think's cooking the food? Who do you think's waiting on you? If, if you really believe that, you know, why are you giving in and, and, and aiding people that, are, that have to work on a Sunday? So we don't want to get legalistic in that that aspect. And that's kind of what he was pointing out to them. He says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And then, in verse 18, is what we want to look at this morning. He says, for assuredly, or truly, I say to you. See, the honest Jew of Jesus' day knew that he could not fulfill all the requirements of the law. They couldn't even keep all the traditions that they came up with, the oral traditions that were developed by the rabbis and by the scribes over the years. And see, they were looking for somebody, a Messiah, that would come and, and bring a whole new standard that would bring it down to their level so that then all of a sudden they could keep all this stuff and then they could feel good about themselves. But Jesus made it clear, through even through the Beatitudes, as we looked at that, you know, if you look at that as a list of things that you have to do, you're going to fall way short. <laughs> you just are. It's something that God transforms you to be. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the hung, those who hunger for righteousness. The merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. Those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You know, you can't just conjure up those things in your life. Those are something that God develops in your life. And so, he comes to this point here in verse 18 and he says, Assuredly, truly is the idea. It's a, it's a very strong term. It's a, it's a term of intense affirmation. Basically, what Jesus is saying here is that, you know what, I say this to you absolutely, without any qualification, and with the fullest authority vested in me by the Father. That's what he's saying. 
He's saying, I, I want you to listen to this. This is important. And he says, till heaven and earth pass away. See, what he was showing us, first of all, when he used that strong affirmation, he was saying that his teaching is absolute. The words of Christ are absolute. It's not something that has any gray area in them. You, you can't really read through the Bible and read the words of Christ and say, gee, I wonder what he was thinking here. <laughs> he was pretty in the face of the people he was trying to teach. Black and white. Not a lot of wiggle room in Jesus' teaching. But it was also permanent. See, a lot of people look at the Bible and say, well, you know what? How does a 2,000-year-old book apply to us today? Come on. Do you really believe in this stuff? Well, if you believe that His Word is absolute and you believe His Word is permanent, sure. And that's what He's saying here in verse 18. He's saying, until heaven and earth pass away. It represents the end of time as we know it. The end of earthly history. And beloved, that day is coming. You can read through the Scriptures and, and you can read certain portions of Scriptures and say, hey, you know what? You better have a heads up when this stuff starts to happen. When children are rebellious to parents. When there's fornication, just run amok. When people are lover, lovers of themselves. And it goes on, and it goes on, and it goes on. When people worship the creation and not the Creator. Hello? Are we there or what? I mean, we're totally there. And what Jesus was saying in those texts was, you know what, when you start to see these things line up, you better get your act together because the things are going to end real quickly. And I'm coming back. And what he's saying here is, as God's word, the law outlasts the universe as we know it. One day, the day in which the world in which we live will cease to exist. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. This isn't something I'm making up. This isn't a sci-fi morning, you know, let's, let's just kind of dream all this stuff up and scare people. This is something that's literally going to happen. Because the Word of God tells us so. Look at verse uh, 1 of St. Peter chapter 3. He says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminders, reminding them of some things, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the whole prophets, notice, and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last, in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They're mocking. They're saying, well, yeah, Jesus is coming back. Tell me another one. Verse 5. For this they will willfully forget. By the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Verse 6. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for what? For fire until the day of judgment and the uh, perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, don't forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, 
not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of judgment will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Then it goes on, it says, you know, you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming day of the Lord because which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. This is going to happen. This is something that will happen. Well, how will it happen? I don't know. I mean, there's people, oh, it could be a nuclear disaster. It could be this. I think it could happen just because God wants it to happen and He goes, zap, and everything burns up. I mean, to me, that seems pretty simple. And so it's kind of an important point that we understand that, you know what, this is something that God's Word says will happen. Jesus wasn't just talking about, well, you know, one day everything's going to fall, fall apart and it'll pass away. No, this is something that was, is fulfilled, it will be a fulfillment of Scripture. In Psalm 102, verses 25 to 26, the psalmist says, Of old you did find, found the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. Even they will perish, but you will endure in all them will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Even in Isaiah 51, 6, it says, Lift up your eyes to the sky, then look to the earth beneath. For the sky will vanish like smoke, and the earth will wear out like a garment. Its inhabitants will die in like manner. But my righteousness shall not wane. All right? Jesus even equated His own words in Matthew twenty four thirty five. With the Word of God. In Matthew 24, 35, he says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words, this is Jesus speaking, shall not pass away. So you see the authority upon which speaking to these religious leaders of the day. It wasn't just a, you know, kind of little suggestion. He was very strong in his wording. He was very strong in his teaching. And he wanted them to understand that God's Word is eternal, and the words that He's speaking are eternal. So what was true of the law and the fullness meaning of the Old Testament is also true of Jesus' teaching. It's timeless. It's timeless. You can't say, well, this book doesn't apply to me today. It does. When you go and you read you know, a lot of these self-help people you know, and certain principles that they bring out, you know, I don't know if they find them here or not, but you, you can trace every one of them back to the Word of God, for the most part. And it, it's kind of a, you know, they give God word credit, but you know what? It has a lot to say about our daily living. And it's really foolish to ask the question, what does the Bible, a 2,000-year-old book, have to say to us today? Because the Bible is the eternal Word of God. And God is eternal. Hebrews 4.12 says it's living, it's active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to have superiority and it will continue to be preserved by God. And it will outlast every critic, whoever questions its validity and its relevancy. Because that's just the nature of the beast. That's what it is. That's God's Word. It can't be anything other than that. And he wants them to understand that the, 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 how important it is that the whole Word of God 
will not pass away. So he goes down there and he says, For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. And then he says, Not one jot. What's that? It's the smallest letter, basically, of the Greek alphabet. Or even to the Jewish, it's the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. That's what he's talking about. In the Greek, it's, it's translated iota, which is basically the, the simplest letter of the Greek alphabet. And to G- Jesus and his Jewish hearers, it would have been the kind of just this little, almost looks like an apostrophe in the Hebrew language. Just a little mark, but it's a letter. And he says, you know what? Not the smallest letter or one tittle. A tittle basically means a little horn. It refers to a small mark that helps distinguish. When you look at Hebrew, there's sometimes it looks like an apostrophe, like just little marks above the, above the letters. He says, even those are important. And he says, it's kind of, it doesn't matter whether it was the letter itself or a small extension of that letter. All of that is God's word. It won't be erased. It will not be replaced. It won't be abolished from the law. Not even the tiniest, most insignificant part of God's word will be removed or modified. And then he says, until all is accomplished. Until all is accomplished. Jesus brought to completion all the judicial law, all the ceremonial law and certain parts of the moral law, such as the Sabbath we talked about last week. But God's basic moral law is centered on what? Ten Commandments, right? It's centered on the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are just as valid today as they are when, as they were when God gave them to Moses on Mount Sinai. And so during Jesus' earthly ministry on earth, during his death, his resurrection, his ascension, Jesus fulfilled many of these prophecies that we find in the Old Testament. And others, such as the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they they would be fulfilled after Jesus' time. But still, other prophecies, both in the Old and the New Testaments, are yet to be fulfilled. We're not done yet. There's still some things that have to fall in order. And what Jesus is saying, without exception, across the board, every commandment, every prophecy, every figure, every symbol, every type, is going to be accomplished one day. That's the surety of the words in which he speaks. And no other statement made by our Lord more clearly states his absolute contention that Scripture is verbally inerrant, without error, totally without error, in the original form in which God gave it. Scripture is God's own word. Not only down to every single written word, but down to every letter, in the smallest part of every letter. That's what we believe. That's why when we say God's word is inspired, we're not talking about just the thoughts that it contains. We're talking about the words that it contains. You say, well, you know, there's so many different translations today. Look, translations are not inspired. Okay? They're just not. But the original Autographs, the original, are definitely inspired. And for the most part, any translation you can take can pretty much have the meaning of what was intended and things like that. And, and you know, it's, I think Satan uses translations a lot of times to get our focus on other things. But it's important to understand that this is an inspired book. And God is perfectly capable of preserving it until all these things are accomplished. That word accomplished, genomite, has a similar meaning 
of the word fulfill in verse 17. It basically means to become or, or take place. And Jesus is referring here to the Old Testament, and He refers to the Old Testament in the Gospel some 64 times. And He always refers to it as authoritative truth. He never says, oh yeah, those guys back there, you know, they didn't know what they're talking about. No, it's always an affirm, affirming uh, authoritative truth of the Old Testament when Jesus speaks of it. Even when He was defending His Messiahship before the unbelieving Jewish leaders in the temple in 1035, He says, the Scripture cannot be broken. You cannot break the Scripture. When the Sadducees tried to trip him up and they wanted to ask him this tricky question, you know, uh, which of the seven successful husbands would be the woman's husband in the resurrection? Remember that? In Matthew 22? He didn't even answer the question. He just looked at him and said, you know what, you're mistaken. You don't understand what you're talking about. You don't understand the Scriptures or the power of God. What he was saying was... you don't. You, you, this, the question itself is a foolish question, and he goes on to say in verse thirty. He says, you know, kind of. If you'd know anything, you'd understand that in the resurrection, there's not marriage. They don't marry. There's no one given in marriage, but we're like angels in heaven. So your whole premise for the question is off. And he goes on in verse thirty-one and thirty-two to correct the Sadducees' view of the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees, the Pharisees did, but the Sadducees didn't. That's why they were Sadducee. You know, that's a good way to keep them apart. But in verses 31 and 32, he says, But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, he was confronting the Sadducees about the resurrection. And it was really based on one verb tense. Back in Exodus, in chapter 3, verse 20, he says that God told Moses that he is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And hundreds of years after those patriarchs had died, the Lord was still their God. He still used the same tense. He didn't say, oh yeah, God was the God of Abraham, because they're dead now. Because they're not dead. They're still alive. They're just in a different place. God's Word is authoritative, down to the smallest letter. That's why it's so important when we read the Bible, when we study the Bible, to understand not what we want it to mean, not what we hope it means, but what does it mean? What is the interpretation of the text? What was He talking about when He was talking to these people? Now, after we understand what it means, then we can apply it. The rule in hermeneutics is there's only one proper, true interpretation of any Scripture. But there are many applications. So don't ever fall into the thing and don't ever say, well, you know, that's just your interpretation. Well, you know, you could, that would be as ridiculous as say, you know, I got a... Is this blue or black? Blue? Blue suit? Say it's blue. We'll use a shirt, blue. I hope this is a blue shirt. I have a blue shirt on. And you you can say, well, that's your interpretation. Well, either it's blue or it's not. There's no really interpretive factor there. Right? I mean, you wouldn't say, well, I think the blue is yellow. I think you have a yellow shirt. You wouldn't say that'd be ridiculous. Even though that's the day and age we live in today, because everything's relative. Well, if you want to believe that that blue shirt is yellow, go ahead. I guess that's your right. But see, the shirt is blue. And that's the same thing when it comes to Scripture. When we read a Scripture, it says what it says. 
And it's very important that we understand the context of it and what truth is being passed on to us by that verse, whatever verse it may be. Now, after we understand what it means, then how does that apply to us? That's a whole different thing. That's why we don't go to a Bible study and sit around and say, well, what does this verse mean to you? Oh, it means this. Oh, what's it mean to you? And you go around the circle and everybody gives their own meaning and then you move on to the next verse. And nobody's taught anything. That's not healthy. We want to understand what Scripture says because we believe it to be the Word of God. And when it's believed and obeyed, it will save us from error. That's how people get off in their theology, off in their Christian living. They forget about the Word of God. They come up with their own rules, their own regulations, their own form of legalism, whatever you may call it. And it gives the church a bad name. It gives Christianity a bad name. Let's just focus on the Word, what the Word says, and then let's do it. Over and over again, Jesus confirmed the accuracy and the authenticity of the Old Testament. You see it in Matthew 19 when he talked about the Garden of Eden and the standard of marriage that was established there. You look at Luke 11.51, he talks about the murder of Abel. In Matthew 24, verses 38 to 39, he talks about Noah and the flood. John 8.56, he talks about Abraham and his faith. In Luke 17, he talked about Sodom, Lot, and Lot's, life, Lot's wife. In Mark 12... He talked about the call of Moses in John 6. He talked about the manna from heaven. And even in John 3, he referred to the bronze serpent. Over and over again, Jesus affirmed the authority of the Old Testament. Jesus also made clear that Scripture was given to lead men to salvation. That's the purpose of this book. It's not just a book that you read just to feel good. These are the very words of God. You remember in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, when Abraham told the rich man, he was crying out and saying, boy, you know, please tell my brothers about this. He, he hoped that maybe they would be saved from hell. And he says, you know what? They have the Moses. They have Moses and the prophets. Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. In other words, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, what makes you think that if they see somebody rise from the dead, it's going to make any difference? How many times have you shared the Lord with somebody and, and they, their response is, well, if God would do a miracle in my life, maybe I would believe. No, they wouldn't. That's, that's totally ridiculous. God doesn't have to prove himself to anybody. And when you go down that road, what happens? It's a slippery slope and all this weirdness that's going on today in the church. See, they had God's Word in that parable in Luke 16, and that was sufficient to bring them to God and to salvation, if they would believe it. See, that's a good left to the church in general today. See, unfortunately, the church in general has got this idea that somehow we have to market ourselves to unbelievers. And so when we market ourselves to unbelievers, then you have to stop and you say, well, if an unbeliever comes in here, you know, we, we want them to, we want to cater to their needs in every way. So we don't want to mention the blood of Christ because they don't understand that and that could turn them off. We don't want to talk about hell because that would be offensive to them. We definitely don't want to call them a sinner even though God's Word does because you know we'll just call it, you know, they make mistakes. And, and so we start to kind of conjure up this idea of, of the, the church which is not biblical at all. And then all of a sudden you have a church full of unbelievers thinking, mistakenly so, that somehow they're going to heaven but they've never really been communicated the true gospel of Christ because they edited out all the words <laughs> that have any significance. Words like repentance. Words like being sorrow, sorrowful for your sin. 
The idea of being a sinner. You know, we're, that's what we are. That's what the Bible calls us. You can't change the terminology and then expect it to have the same impact if you truly believe that it's words of God. Jesus used the Scripture in His own defense, you remember, when He was tempted by Satan. He counted each temptation, countered each temptation with quotations from Deuteronomy. Don't you think Jesus, in that circumstance, could have came up with something new to say? <laughs> I mean, He was the Son of God. He was God. Surely He could have gave us something new. But what did He do? He quoted from the Old Testament. Why? Because He wanted us to understand that, you know what? There's validity in the Word of God. There's authority in the Word of God. I read this in a, a commentary. That the writer of the commentary was saying that he heard a, a preacher at the time say this, and I've heard preachers say this similar thing, but not necessarily in this way. He said, the one thing I've learned, this is what this preacher said, the one thing I've learned is that when you get into the pulpit, you've got to somehow communicate without using the Bible. Because the Bible turns people off. And personally, I've spent a long time developing the ability to communicate to people without ever using the Bible. I started out in my ministry saying, this verse says this, and that verse says that. And then I finally realized that wouldn't get me anywhere. Now I say it in my own way. And you know what? People accept it. And they like me. You know, we look at that and we say, that's kind of ridiculous. But you know what? There's a lot of truth in what he said. There really is. Many people today are very much turned off by the Bible. If you don't believe me, just go around quoting it. Men, women, everybody today is turned off by God's Word. That's not a new thing. It's been for ages. It's been turning off unbelievers for thousands of years. And many people today, just as in Jesus' day, and in the day of Moses, and even in the day of the prophets, would much rather hear the opinions of men. Something that's going to tickle their ears. Something that's going to tickle their fancy. Something that's going to help their self-esteem than to hear the words of Scripture. Even though those opinions cannot lead them to truth, even though those opinions can't lead them to salvation, it's unfortunate, but a lot of men's opinions that don't square with Scripture often leave people superficially content and satisfied. They walk away thinking something that's really not. But a lot of times they're left in the darkness of their own sin. So they may feel good about themselves for a while until that besetting sin comes back and you know they're back doing the same thing they did before. See, those opinions of men will not give you the power to overcome sin in your life. Those opinions of men will not give you the, 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 the understanding of God and His Word. Turn over to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Remember, shortly after his temptation, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus went into the synagogue at Nazareth. And when we were over there in 
Israel a couple weeks ago. We actually went, drove through Nazareth, and we didn't really stop there because the tour guide said they were kind of stoning buses, so it might not be good to stop, so I agreed with him. But we went outside of Nazareth, and we actually went up to this place, a traditional place. They took Jesus, he did what we're going to read here in Luke 4. Look at, at Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. As his custom, this is his hometown. As his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Something he did often. It says it was his custom. They knew him. Verse 17. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. And here's what he begins to quote out of Isaiah 61. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to cover the recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Now, you say, that's a pretty good message, which it is. Now, it's interesting, if you turn back to Isaiah 61, his reader or his listeners were probably a little startled at what he did. Isaiah 61, we see where he's quoting in verse 1. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Okay, we're okay so far. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book in the middle of the verse. You notice what the next part of that verse says. And the day of vengeance of our God. It's interesting to me that Jesus was here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. He wasn't here to bring judgment on the earth. He came as a Savior, and He wanted them to understand that. He wanted them to understand that, you know what? Here is your chance. They were Jews. They understood what he was doing. They understood the text he was reading. And they were probably startled in verse 20 when it says, Then he closed the book, he gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. They probably would think, Wait, isn't there more to that verse? And it says, The eyes in verse 20 of all who were in the synagogue were fixed upon him. They were staring at him. They were irritated. They were thinking, what is this guy doing? Verse 21, knowing their hearts, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. (laughs) What was he saying? He's standing in a synagogue with, with, with Jewish folks there, reading from the prophet Isaiah, and then he personalizes and he says, You know what? I'm the one that I just read to you about. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. 
That's what he was saying. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And look at their reaction. So all bore witness to him, and they marveled at first his gracious words, which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? This is kind of amazing. I mean, who is this guy? They were blown away. Verse 23, and he said to them, this is kind of the... The knockout punch. You will surely say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. He knew what was in their heart. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. They wanted some proof that what he was saying was for real. Verse 24. Then he said, verse 24, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you, truly, same word as he used over in Matthew, And listen what he says. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them Elijah sent except Zarephath in the region of Sutton to a woman who was a widow, most likely a Gentile. And many lepers, in verse 27, were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed except Naaman, Syrian, a Gentile. They were blown away by this. I mean, they're the religious people. How dare he say that God is going to do something for the Gentiles and not do it for them? And look at what the reaction was in verse 28. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath has the idea they were clenching their, their teeth. They, they couldn't contain themselves. Verse 29, they rose up and they thrust him out of the city. And remember, he grew up there. This is the good old boy. He's, he's one of us. <laughs> and then in verse 29, it says, they rose up and thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. That's where we were. That they might throw him down over the cliff. And if you got thrown over that cliff, you would definitely die. He wouldn't just tumble down. I mean, it's very steep. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Why do I read that to you? I read that to you because here Jesus is quoting from the law. And yet, he was claiming to be the fulfillment of what he quoted. And what was the reaction? Anger. When you tell people, you know what? The Word of God says that there's only one way to heaven, and that's Jesus Christ, His only Son. Most people don't go, wow, great news, man, how do I get a hold? No. You know, you're close-minded. What are you thinking? That seems so narrow-minded. You don't think God loves everybody? Well, His Word says, well, what are you always quoting the Bible for? It's not accepted. And it's important that we understand that. So the Lord gives this Scripture... And this is the authority of Scripture to even establish his own. Remember when John the Baptist in Matthew 11 sent some of his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the expected one or should we look for another? Jesus answered and said to them, Go and report to John what you see, what you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised from the dead, the poor have the gospel preached to them. In reply, Jesus basically again referred to the same passage from Isaiah which predicted the Messiah and His work. And remember when He even cleansed the temple, when He returned to Jerusalem for the last time, He defended His action 
on the basis of Scripture. He says, is it not written in Mark 11? My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a robber's den. You know, it's impossible. Get this if you don't get anything else this morning. It's impossible to accept Christ's authority without accepting Scripture's authority. And it's impossible to accept Scripture's authority without accepting Christ's authority. To accept Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord is to accept what He taught about Scripture. To become a citizen of the kingdom is to accept what the King says about God's Word. To have the character that we learned about in the Beatitudes, kingdom character and a a kingdom testimony, is to obey the King's Scriptures, the King's Word. Scripture's authority is Christ's authority. And to obey the Lord is to obey His Word. John 8, 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. John 6, 38 says, To trust in Christ is to say of Him as Peter did, You have words of eternal life. I pray this morning that you believe that these are words of eternal life. That His Word, not my Word, His Word, is the word that is far superior above all things. If the Bible contains errors, we have to conclude a couple things about Christ. First of all, either he was ignorant of those errors when he was here, therefore that would make him not omniscient, therefore he would not be God. Or the other possibility, he knew about the errors, but he just chose not to share them with us, therefore he'd be a hypocrite, and therefore he wouldn't be God. So if not a single letter or a single stroke, as we read this morning in Matthew, is going to pass away, we need to receive it for what it is. James one twenty one says, Receive the word implanted, which is to save your soul. You know, I don't know where you're at this morning with the Lord. I don't know if, if you've put your faith, your trust in Him for your salvation, for the forgiveness of your sins or not. But if you haven't, now's the time. Because this is, is, is what will transform your life. We should receive it because of the author himself, and the authoritative statements he made about it. We should receive it because the price God had to pay to get it to us. We should also receive it because not to receive it brings that day of judgment that Jesus withheld speaking about because he was here to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. But the day of judgment is coming, beloved. When Christ comes back, he's not going to come back as a Savior. He's going to come back as a... And he'll set all things in order. So we need to receive it. Secondly, we need to honor it. You know, that's why when we read the Bible, beginning of the service... We stand up. It's nothing, you know, I mean, there's in, in the Old Testament, you know, when, when they read the Scripture, uh, they would stand up. But, you know, it's not a legalistic thing. It's just out of, out of honor of God's Word, that we believe that this is God's Word. Verse 119, verse 103, or Psalm 119, verse 103 says, How sweet are thy words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Do we honor God's Word like that? Spurgeon once said, they call George Fox a quack. 
because when he spoke, he would quake exceedingly through the force of the truth he so thoroughly apprehended. You know, sometimes we don't quake in front of God's word. We don't fear God's word like we should. We take it for granted. We take this book home from church and it sits on the shelf until next Sunday. And then we dust it off and we bring it. If we really believe this is God's word, if we really believe that it has the ability to transform lives and to change lives and to change our own lives and to make us more like Christ, why doesn't it have the proper priority in our life? I don't know about you, but the first thing to go in my schedule a lot of times is that time in the Word when you get busy. It's like, oh, God, I understand. You kind of set it aside and you, know, you feel guilty over it, but why is that? I mean, it should be like oxygen. You know, if I shut you off from any oxygen, pretty soon you'd be wanting some real bad. And what would happen if you didn't get any? You would die. You know, and we should desire the pure milk of the, the, the Word, the Bible says. It should be something that's deep down within us. And thirdly, we should obey it. That goes kind of un, unsaid. But we're called to obey it because it's, it's able to present ourselves approved to God as a workman that we don't need to be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of truth, Second Timothy says. We should also defend God's Word. In Jude 3 it says, contend earnestly for the faith. You know, don't ever allow someone just to kind of, ah, yeah, the Bible's not for today. I'm not saying to get a big argument about it, but say something. I mean, if nothing else, just say, you know what, this book has transformed my life. You know, I was a drunk one time, or I was a drug addict, or I was this, or I was that. But you know what, when I, when I began to read God's Word, it transformed me. It made me something that I could not be on my own. They can't argue with that. And the last thing we're called to do is, is proclaim it. We're called to proclaim it. Spurgeon said this, I cannot speak out of my whole heart on this theme, which is so dear to me, but I would stir you all up to be instant in season and out of season in telling out the gospel message, especially to repeat such a word as this. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whisper it in the ear of a sick. Shout it on the corner streets. Write it on your tablet. Send it forth from the press. But everywhere, let this be your great motive and warrant. You preach the gospel because the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You that You have given us this book, that it is a book that's without error, that it is a book that we can have faith in. Lord, it's a book, and You're a God who has changed our lives forever. Lord, we could go around the room if time would be on our side, and we could share testimony after testimony after testimony how our life was a wreck at one point. And then we bowed our knee to you in obedience to your word. We understood that it's not all about us. That our situation isn't so much different than everybody else's. We're all sinners. There's not a person in this room who could say, Oh, I've never done anything wrong. I'm perfect. And because we're all sinners, the Bible says clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But it also says that he 
paid the price of our sin on Calvary. When His Son came down and lived a life, a perfect life, and was nailed to that cross, He died for the sins of the world. For my sin, for your sin. And when we stop and we realize that and we put our faith, our trust in Him and we cry out to Him, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't know about what this guy's saying. I don't know all the ins and outs, but you know what? The one thing I do know is that I need some help in my life right now, God, and you're about the only person who's going to hear me. Cry out to Him this morning. He'll hear you. He'll give you the faith to believe in Him even if you don't have it. And He'll change your life. Because this truly is the Son of God and this truly is His Word. Father, we pray this morning that You would continue to minister to us as we close in a song and also, Lord, in our fellowship time together. Lord, help us never forget how precious Your Word is to us. And Lord, as we go out throughout this week, Lord, I pray it would be on our lips that we'd be able to speak Your Word into people's lives, that we could see it change and transform those who are around us. Lord, rather than share our own opinion, share what Your Word says. Well, that should be our principles. That should be how we communicate. Father, I pray that we would see it change many lives in our church, in our community, in our families. Father, we thank You and we praise You in Jesus' precious name. All God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a song.